LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Listen without limits. Unchain your brain. Change your thinking. Change your life. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guests today are Thomas Sheridan and Neil MacDonald who join us to discuss their book and film, Atlantis, An Empire Lost and Found. The lost continent of Atlantis has been the stuff of myth and legend for thousands of years, but did it ever really exist? Although quite specific about the nature and location of Atlantis, Plato's account is generally taken as allegory by mainstream archaeologists and historians. However, stories of devastating floods and once advanced civilizations going right back to the end of the last ice age can be found all over the world as can evidence for them in the archaeology. In this groundbreaking new work, Sheridan and MacDonald link the possible existence of Atlantis directly to megalithic culture, specifically that which erected the many stone circles and other similar structures, the remains of which dot the Atlantic fringes, particularly around the British Isles. Along the way, we pose probing questions such as, do secretive occult orders and mystery schools hide knowledge of past civilizations? Did the misuse of powerful technology cause the destruction of Atlantis, and might we be on the brink of making the same mistakes? And, is the current dysfunctional and schizophrenic state of our species somehow linked to collective trauma in the deep past, and if so, could Atlantis hold the key to our survival? Hello and welcome Thomas and Neil, thanks so much for joining us once again on LegalizeFreedom.com. Well, thanks for inviting us again. How are you, Greg? Uh, doing good, thanks. Today we're going to be talking about a new film and accompanying book which you guys have produced. It's entitled Atlantis, An Empire Lost and Found. Now, you both, be, Thomas, you've been on the show many times, and Neil, you've been on a couple of times as well. So we're going to skip lengthy introductions. There'll be some biographical information on the interview page on the website for this. And at the end, we'll, we'll fire out some links. People can find you guys online, no problem. Uh, let's just dive in and talk about uh, the genesis of the project. Because I know Atlantis, the, the myth or whatever, the legend, the truth of the matter has been a longstanding interest of yours, Thomas. And uh, But perhaps, Neil, I mean, obviously you're... Um, megalithic expert, but I don't perhaps know about where your interest in Atlantis came from. So maybe you could kick off with that, Neil, and uh, then uh, either or both of you can just tell us about how the project got started. Yeah, sure. I think that my original interest in Atlantis came from sort of mystery, mystery school um, learning. It was always in there in the background, and what I, it kind of it kind of came together with the. The fact that I've been traveling around Megalith for about 20 years now. And I think the idea was I couldn't, I knew there was something there in the background of the you know, the history of the Megaliths in uh, in these islands here. And it was only, it was after, after literally after so many years of, of doing this, and it came together that 
I wonder if there's a connection between the old, the old uh, uh, mysteries of Atlantis and the, the places we are we have now, the, the ancient sites we see now. And that's really where, where, I, where I'm coming from. So how did the project get started then? Because obviously you could have done either a film or a book, but you've chosen to do both. Well, it was um, Thomas and I went after the, the first lockdown. Thomas and I went around the sites in the Lake District and we just kind of, you know, as you spend two or three days doing this, you're, you're discussing it. And we had so many ideas. We found there were so many ideas that we both had that sort of interlocked. And it seemed to send you off in all different directions as well. So that, that was, that's how it all started. And then Thomas eventually suggested, do you want to do a, a book and a film? We just, <laughs> from the beginning, I think we decided to do the book first. And then um, the, the film just came out of it. I think for years I was uh, I, w- I wasn't fully sure about the Atlantis thing. I knew there was something to it, but I wasn't for a long time. I wasn't sure if, if Plato was actually talking about a real place, or was using the story as a kind of a symbolic motif for the hierarchy hierarchies of control in society. The way he described the concentric islands with the the priest and political class at the center of the the center island and the as the classes decrease as you go to the outside, sort of like the pyramid flattened down. I couldn't figure that one out. But then what was really bothering me, I knew there was definitely some kind of missing link in regards to this ancient civilizations because all the the oldest megaliths on these islands are all on the extreme western fringes or northern fringes. They're in Orkney, they're on Sligo, they're in Donegal, they're in Kerry, they're on the west coast of England, and they're, and they're literally lots of them are literally on the sea. Sorry, the east coast of England, literally, literally in Cornwall and place like that. Literally, they're on the sea. They're literally in walking distance of the beach, or you can see them. So I couldn't understand how. I knew there had to be something to it that the the oldest megaliths next to the Atlantic Ocean told us that they were related heavily to the Atlantic Ocean, and then adding the two things of that and all the ancient Celtic and other mythologies of a kingly race or a, 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 a great race that arrived from the ocean, from the Atlantic, where their, their, their homeland had been destroyed in a cataclysm. Well, I just put two and two together and got the four. Right. The four was that probably Plato was probably telling us exactly what happened, and it wasn't an allegory, it was the real thing. Well, exactly. Yeah. I was reading uh, Timius and Critias a few years ago, and I don't understand why people were looking all over the world for Atlantis when he said exactly where it is. He pinpointed it. And also he said, this is not an allegory. This is truth. You know, he, he, he emphasized that. And then putting that together with the fact that uh, the waters around uh, the south of England uh, rose so high, um, so much went beneath the waters. And that's exactly where he said Atlantis would be. You know, that's, Another point, isn't it, that leads you in that direction? But even if it, Plato was writing, speaking metaphorically, even if it is an allegory, that doesn't rule out the possibility, given a lot of the strong um, circumstantial evidence that we have for some kind of advanced civilization in the distant past. You know, it, the two things are not mutually exclusive. So that's when people just say, oh, well, Plato this, Plato that, as if he's the only person ever in the whole history of the human race that ever spoke about an antediluvian civilization that was advanced you know not least look at the universal flood myths that we have 
And there's no, it's no coincidence that when we get back to the you know the last ice age beyond that in time, it, things get very hazy as far as the history of our species goes. Um, but we've not got no reason to think that as cataclysmic as some of the changes were, you know, around the uh, what Graham Hancock, you know, he writes about the Younger Dryas period. And if there was a planetary cataclysm, no reason to think that there was nothing of note prior to that. You know, so we the universal flood myths, uh, universal um, stories about uh, advanced civilization often referred to, uh, even referred to in the Bible, for example, but often referred to as, you know, um, super beings, you know, or a race of giants, whatever it happens to be. And we know that sea levels um, are much higher now uh, than they were in the past. And this is points that are very suggestive when you look at these land masses that you're referring to, you know, these little archipelagos, everything from Easter Island through to, uh, you know, the islands around, um, well, you know, the, the British Isles themselves. Um, and as you point out, these things being on the fringes of the land masses as they stand now, and it also appears that, and certainly in Britain anyway, that the megaliths seem to be created from the north moving south, which doesn't make a great deal of sense if you take, if you were to assume, for example, that the land masses as they are now were the same, you know, 10, 15, 20,000 years ago. Clearly they weren't. So put all of this together, it's suggestive certainly of something very, very different to, to what we see now. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Another catalyst for us, you mentioned Easter Island, for both myself and Neil, was Sardinia and Malta. It's obvious that the resources needed to build the vast megaliths and infrastructure on those islands from Neolithic and Bronze Age times, allegedly, were not available on those two small islands alone, just like Easter Island. They had to have been the summits or something of a larger massive land and they have found megaliths under the sea off the coast of sicily so that was another one that was a, another one that we both looked at like you you the, the sea levels rose everywhere as this uh this this shelf that atlantis was on and it changed the land mass everywhere and it was only really the highlands on islands that remained and there's no doubt about it there are, there must be vast megalithic structures under the sea around the likes of sardinia malta the the Canary Islands and so on. And you talk about legends of people from the West, you know, coming from the West. In the Central America and the, in, in Latin, in North America, the Aztecs and the Mayans have stories of the opposite. They're coming from the East, from the Atlantic. And again, they're, they're fair-skinned, bearded people who, who were the ones who, who taught them all about this science and engineering. And it's always related heavily to agriculture as well. Agricultural technology seems to have been the main legacy left by these refugees from this empire of Atlantis. And you saw the science and technology, that, that's a big thing, isn't it? Because I know that one of the first questions that anybody always asks me, no matter what tour on, how on earth did they do this? How did they move these huge rocks? Well, that's the basic question, isn't it? And I always have to say, well, I don't know how they did it. There just seems to have been some sorts of um, engineering, some sort of mechanics that we've totally forgotten about it was coming from a totally dif different direction and it's um yeah that, that's that's and this is another way of answering that question isn't it i always had that in the back of my mind but i was reluctant to say it but uh, i think it just came to the point where you know these things started knitting together one of the the great thought stoppers 
about Atlantis, and it might seem like a, a superficial point, but it's not, which has kind of exploded in your film and in the book, is that the vision, if you, if you do a, an image search on Atlantis, you'll come up with lots of images of classical architecture, you know, these Greco-Roman pillars and what have you and uh, stuff that looks like all you know all of that when we say ancient Rome ancient Greece what we think of but that that is that people can get stuck on that very much in the way that they can get stuck on Plato's writings as the only thing ever said about an antediluvian civilization I mean for example the the Greeks also had um, the legend of um, Hyperborea you know people from the far north which they spoke about which we in their worldview Scandinavia possibly Britain as well, and Rudolf Steiner, for example, the very essence of sobriety, speaks very seriously. And I, I don't really know uh, where he gleaned his his information from. Um, clearly, it was there was some kind of inner source or exterior source that was non-material. But he speaks very seriously about the current. He talks about human history in terms of epochs, the At- Atlantean epoch, the Lemurian epoch, and he also speaks of Mu and these, you know, ages of of man. That have that have come and gone, leaving very few traces. And I just use him as one example. But interestingly, when you do dig into mystery traditions and the histories of occult orders, you find that that knowledge of the, the type that we're talking about, whether it's you know of physical uh, remains of something that came before that's long lost and forgotten, or of knowledge, is maintained you know assiduously in some of these traditions and orders. I think with the Greeks, Hyperborea, talking about the civilization on the north, I'm more and more inclined to think that's probably Orkney, especially as the more discoveries. Now, remember, that is of the same height as Scandinavia, and even though it's, it's technically part of Scotland. And there are more and more discoveries being made that uh, Nessa Brogner concludes that that was a spectacular ancient civilization. And if there was one you know, prime suspect for the, in that terms, of the Greeks believing they came from the north, I would be inclined now to think it was Orkney because there's nothing comparable to that in Scandinavia. Now, another one you said there, but the we one of the things I wanted to do, I would both wanted to do with this film and book, was to break that sort of Greco-Roman classical aesthetic spell that has always come with the Atlantis story, that it looked like it was Athens or it looked like it was Rome. And that's purely a prejudice put to people's minds by Plato telling the story and it being associated with the, the Greco world. And that was a big one, because if you can break that spell that it didn't look like ancient Rome or ancient Athens, you suddenly have people now considering it in a whole new direction, and it becomes a kind of esoteric, aesthetically, not esoterically, well, maybe so, but aesthetically and visually, artistically designed and infrastructure-wise, more in alignment with the megaliths of these islands than it is with the actual Greco-Roman world. So that was a big deal for us, to actually bust through that uh, assumption or prejudice that it was a, a Greco-Roman aesthetic that ruled Atlantis. Yeah, because you tend, you tend to look at things through the eyes of what you know, don't you? And uh, there's no reason why Atlantis should have been like this at all. The Ness of Bronca is uh, an absolutely incredible place. And I've got to keep a, a, a keen eye on it. I was talking to the archaeologist there, and he's saying that there's, you see, about 10 football pitches worth of uh, archaeology underneath the ground. And it could take like 100 years if they kept at, kept at it before they, can, um, before they can actually get at it all. But as, as it unfolds, it's, it's like it's just a city. 
It's just about a city, not as you would imagine, uh, cities we know them. But, so I, we've got to keep a keen eye because it's going to unfold. I think it'll give us a better idea of what Atlantis was like. Well, again, it's like if you had, if you, if you were able to take a human being from 10, 15, 20,000 years ago and transport them into the present day, setting aside their possible bafflement and bemusement at the world we've made, if you took them to some of these sites and said, we're really confused, how was this done, what does this mean? They might be able to rattle off something really, really straightforward. Yeah, this is this, and then we did this, and that's how we did this. I'm surprised you can't work it out. If you look at Easter Island, for example, I know this is like beyond the subject uh, matter of your of your book and film per se, but and people have been puzzled by why the, the statues appear to be quote-unquote buried. You know, half of them are underground. Well, first of all, it's not uncommon for megaliths themselves for there to be more than half of the stone beneath the earth just to make it stable. But the, the earth has undergone enormous changes since these things were made. Again, and I think the dating of these, a lot of these are is super conservative, but that's the archaeological establishment for you. If you then look at the film, for example, science fiction film, Planet of the Apes, and clearly the, the, most people listening here will know the basic backstory, but you know that the ape species, they're technologically quite primitive and they're wary of the human technology from the past particularly in whatever the the third second or third film with nuclear weapons you know they don't have that sort of technology and they've got no idea how it could ever be done at the end of the first film when you see charlton heston discovers the statue of liberty liberty on that beach first of all the land around has changed and the statue is like half buried by earth but we you know charlton heston wouldn't have any problem explaining how it was done and what it means because it's of his of his time, but you look at it and, and we we don't we're not confused by that. We just think, well, it's thousands, possibly tens of thousands of years since it was made, and the Earth changes, the sea levels go up and down, the land moves, and the statue's half buried because it's so bloody old. Yeah, I completely agree with that, and I wouldn't say that Easter Island is uh, too much off topic when you think of things like Lemuria and so on. But it was it was a global a global cataclysm or whatever that caused the Atlantean destruction and about those statues being buried in soil that's not all organic that's not ash or anything like that that's organic clay all the way down to their feet so those east island statues and i suspect in fact i'm almost certain of it the megaliths of of western europe are spectacularly ancient and they've just been subject to much more heavy erosion here than they were in the south pacific we don't really know at all what stonehenge really looked like what the you know Orkney standing stones look like any of them because they're probably weathered by God knows how many thousands upon thousands of years more than the official story. Just yesterday, some of us were examining a statue from the medieval period and it's apparently of St. Peter. And I had to have it explained to me. It's been heavily weathered because it's been outside since the medieval period. I'm not sure if it was early, middle or late, but anyway... It's so heavily weathered, I had to have it explained to me that, well, this is his face, and you can see he's holding a small church building in his hands. And I'm like, oh, wow, okay, yeah, I can see that. Now you pointed it out. And then somebody said, oh, well, we're not sure if this is St. Peter. It might be St. William. And this is something that might only be 800 years old. Yeah, you've got a good point there. I mean, you just look at the crosses, don't you? The um, the, the Roman, sorry, the, the Viking and early Christian crosses. And most of the... the carvings there have kind of disappeared and that's only well up to a thousand years i mean these are thousands and thousands and thousands of years we have the things with the um the top of a lot of the megaliths 
or the standing stones where they they've caught they've got drain it looks like there's drain coming down them and we, we're not even sure whether those have that's because of water seepage through the years or they were carved like that i tend to think it's water seepage but i think it was um aubrey burley said that every stone is the shape it is for a reason so i think what he meant was every stone was either found to fit into that particular position that it's in for for aesthetic purposes or they were carved and if they were carved i mean that just puts a whole new element to it all doesn't it yeah, the the Grand Men here in in Lochmacmier in France, that has that's the largest the largest standing stone ever, absolutely colossal. It fell over about three hundred years ago, but that has comp that it's been lying face down, and the face down seems to have protected the carvings on it, and this gigantic megalith has carvings on the front of it. So yeah, these ancient Neolithic stones and carvings on them. It's just that they've been washed away. And the ones that have been buried, we see traces of them, you know, Long Meg and so on. There's also a very interesting structure in Clonmacnoise in Ireland, and it's called the, 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 the North Cross. And this thing looks, it's not, it's not a cross, it has no top on it, it's a standing stone. It has symbols on it and shapes on it that are n- absolutely not Christian. One of them even looks like uh, Serunos, the Indo-European god. But this thing looks like it's been in the sea for years, or in the water for years and then pulled out and somebody called it a cross. Does, you start looking at the smoking guns for the ancient, how ancient these stones are is everywhere. It's, it's all over the place. The Dakar bears, for instance, we didn't cover it in the film, it's in the book, that Neil introduced me to, these four remarkable statues in Cumbria. I let uh, Neil talk about this, but that was a big game changer for me. Well, yeah, the, the four, um, we call them bears, but um, I don't think they are bears at all. That was a story that the... Um, the, the priest of the, the church sort of just wrote a little story on it. Well, they call the Dakar bears, but they're creatures, aren't they? And it, and they're, they're huge. Well, they're about four or five feet tall, uh, and there's four of them, one in each corner of the of the church in Dakar. And they're just they're, you, they, they, you can't describe what they are at all. They're uh, and what they came from. They don't fit into any story. Um, or any school of art? No, or any school of art. So they must buy, they must come from some previous school of art or some previous uh, story. So, I mean, they are amazing, aren't they? But I, I take people there and, they, and nobody yet has found, has come up with a, a decent explanation of them. Everybody has a different idea of what they are. Yeah, as soon as you brought me to them, Neil, I, I just looked at them and said, these are not from any megalithic culture and they're spectacularly ancient and I believe they were found buried when the church was being built they were, they were found underneath the site yeah they were yeah they were and there was an, an ancient monastery there or something before so they've come right the way through from um, from the church and pre-church and basically who knows where they came from originally now in terms of how these things were done physically there was a couple of puzzle pieces from the past that I was able to you know bring back into my, my mind when I was watching the film and reading your book um, a few years ago I did an interview with a geologist called um, uh, Maxlow um, his first name escapes you know but you'll M-A-X-L-O-W you'll find it uh, legalizefreedom.com and he's an expanding earth theorist and uh, contending that the earth has wasn't as big as it is now in the past and this allowed for um, in his opinion 
how enormous the dinosaurs were because physiologically they seem to make no sense. You know, they should collapse under their own weight. And his idea is that gravity has varied over time. The other puzzle piece was Rudolf Steiner talking about physical conditions being different on the Earth in the distant past in, ter- in terms of physics and gravity. And we have legends about stone blocks, for example, being moved uh, using sound or some form of vibration. So this is all fertile ground, I think. Yes, very speculative, but to start imagining the rules that we live under are not a given necessarily. They, they may have been different in the past. They may change in future. We know that conditions vary throughout the solar system, physical conditions, and that we've no reason to think that the laws of nature are necessarily fixed. As Rupert Sheldrick says, the laws of nature are really more like habits, tendencies, and there's evidence that the uh, speed of light may vary in different parts of the solar system and the cosmos generally. So taking all of that into account, and I know you do touch upon this, there may be ways that we just don't understand, we'll never understand, or may not be, just be possible now because of different physical conditions, uh, ways that these things could be done and would make them less mysterious. Yeah, we've no idea, have we, what gravity is. So the, and um, Edgar Cayce as well spoke of different, uh, totally different conditions of gravity and, and uh, he went to really quite deeply into all that sort of thing. So, I mean, I don't like the idea that that stones were just moved because they were easier to move. I, I mean, it might be true, but I just, I think they, they seem, it was a, it's a, they seem to have had to have put a lot, a lot of effort into it to make them worthwhile. But, uh, it, you know, it could well be true that there was um, different um, gravitorial conditions, whatever gravity is. Yeah, I think all of the above. I, I'm not completely against the expanding Earth idea. I think it's actually very intriguing and explains an awful lot. It For me, it actually explains the concept of the one continent being, you know, spread all over the planet better than the idea of floating tectonic plates, that it was the, that we could see the oceans as being cracks and so on. Now, then that would bring up the question, where the oceans come from? Well, if you read Velikovsky's Worlds in Motion, there's lots of folklore all over the world of basically water falling out of space. Like there was a planet that had large amounts of water on it and ended up through a, cata- a cataclysm landing on this planet. And, and, and in recent times, NASA and the European space agencies has said that the actual area in space is filled with kind of almost like floating reservoirs of water. So I wouldn't be against that theory at all. I think it's actually, I wouldn't say plausible, but it's, it's, it's speculation worth running with. That concludes part one of our interview. Part two will be available soon in the subscribers area at LegalizeFreedom.com. LegalizeFreedom.com.